Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Give your Bibles. We're turning to Genesis chapter number 19 this morning. Genesis 19, we come to a heartbreaking chapter in the Bible. And for those that may be guests, if you're here for the first time or second or third time, and I've not yet had a chance to meet you, or even if I have, we welcome you. So glad that you're here. And if you're just joining us, you're joining us as we're walking through the book of Genesis, that first book of the Bible, um, the book of Genesis, the foundation really of our faith, the foundation of, of Scripture. So much of it rests upon the truths found in this first book. And, and this is message number 23 in this series. And I, I, I always encourage you to follow along for yourself. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. If you're following along on a, a phone or a tablet, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. At times we may read a verse aloud together, and that will help with unity there if that's where we're at. But I recognize, and I, I want to say thank you, I recognize that this style of preaching, style of study, what we might call a systematic expositional study of Scripture, takes a little bit of work from the hearer. Last week we covered, I think, about 30 verses. Today we're going to do about the same going through it. It's not one verse with a bunch of entertaining stories and a bunch of illustrations. It takes a little more work for you to stay engaged. I realize also that I don't generally preach 20 to 25 minutes. Generally I preach 40 to 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. And and I understand we live in the TikTok generation. We live in a generation where, where attention spans are mine included or not what they probably should be, and it's easy to get distracted. But I want to encourage you, one, it really it's an approach to Scripture and it's a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture, why we preach and, and study the way that we do, because um, I could give you maybe some helpful thoughts or some, some pithy statements or a motivational speech um, that might be entertaining with a lot of jokes and, and stories and things, and at times I'll use humor and at times I'll use an illustration, we'll have some illustrations today. But the truth of the matter is, I believe that the extra work for the hearer is worth it. If you'll take the time to really engage every Sunday morning over the next 30 to 45 minutes, try to take away the distractions. God's Word is so rich and so deep. It has so much truth that really uh, you can't get by just a quick, let's read one statement and then kind of give you six helps for the week and go in that way. And and if other churches, other pastors, if that's what they want to do, and and I preach different styles at different times, um, that's between them and the Lord. But but our general study, I, I recognize it takes a little bit more effort and mental engagement, and if you're going to really get something from it, and I hope that you will this morning. I'm going to ask at the end, there's going to be a decision for all all of us. I'm going to ask all of us to make one of three decisions at the end of this morning's message, and and follow along. It's going to be based on one of the characters that we'll see throughout our message. I'm going to ask each one of us, based on where we are in our faith journey, in our spiritual walk, where we are, asking God, what would you have me to do based on what we've learned from Genesis 19? I mentioned it's a heartbreaking chapter. If you were with us last Sunday morning, we we went through the book, I'm sorry, the chapter, uh, Genesis chapter number 18. And last week we saw uh, God come, and, and we looked at last week our response to God's seemingly impossible plans. 
we saw God come and give a promise to Abraham about uh, two things. One that I think Abraham liked but didn't think was possible, and one that we know Abraham didn't like that God was planning to do. One was the the miraculous birth of Isaac that that is yet to come, um, telling him that at age 100 and his wife at age 90 they're going to have a child, and we saw that last week. And then we saw, we finished chapter 18 where God and Abraham were having a conversation. Abraham was, was having a conversation with God, Abraham the friend of God, the Bible tells us, and they were talking one to another face to face. We saw that theophany last week. And, and they're talking, and they're having really a conversation, and I think you could say a negotiation. God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their evil, their wickedness, the wickedness of those cities. And Abraham begins to plead, one, I think because he loved the people there, but two, we know for sure he loved his family members there. His nephew Lot and Lot's family and those were there. And he says, God, that doesn't seem like you, that you would destroy the righteous with the wicked. What if there's 50 righteous people? And God says, well, if there are 50 righteous people, I won't destroy it. And you remember this last week? I think Abraham kind of realized, spoke too soon, well, there's not 50 righteous people there, so what are we going to do now? What about 45? I won't do it for 45. What about 40? What about 30? Do I hear 20? And and he, he started going. And we got all the way down to 10. And, and, and we, we finished it up at the end of chapter number 18, the end of verse number 32, God said, and He said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. If there are ten righteous people, I will not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that, that are known for their debauchery, for their wickedness, for their perversion. Genesis chapter number 19, pick it up here. We, we saw last week that it was God and two angels that came to see Abraham. We saw that the angels went their way towards Sodom, and God continued and stayed talking to Abraham. Now look at chapter number 19, verse number 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at evening, and at, at even in the evening, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Uh, The gate of Sodom is not necessarily what we think of as a gate. The gate of Sodom was a a political seat, and we were just in Israel with a group from our church, and we saw one of the oldest uh, cities that's thousands of years old they've excavated, and they, they, they excavated, and they had the gate there where the elders of the city would sit, and when people would enter in and enter out, or if they had a judicial situation that they needed a, a, a ruling on, they would come, and that's where you would go to get your rulings or to be. And so, Lot had not only moved into Sodom, he had moved up into um, the upper echelon of, of respect and of rulers in this wicked, wicked city. And two angels came, and Lot seized them. And by the way, notice that God did not come. We don't know all of the reasons here, but it's interesting to note that God did not accompany the angels as He had in His visit to Abraham in chapter 18. I think one application there is a reminder, Lot living in Sodom, God, uh, that it is the separated believer, the believer that's living righteously that enjoys close walk and close communion with God. Abraham, God sat down and had a meal with Abraham, that theophany we saw last week. And here we see it's just the angels. Now, look at verse number two. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. We see here, again, the angels welcomed the hospitality of Abraham. They kind of rejected the hospitality of Lot. 
He says, come into my house, please. And we're going to find out in a minute, Lot understood the streets of Sodom were no place for, for, um, stra- for strangers, for unaccompanied men to be in the evening. And they said, no, we're fine. We're, we'll be okay. We'll hang out here, and we'll get on our way in the morning. Verse number three, and he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and he entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, both old and young, generations of evil, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them unto us that we may know them. And of course, you understand if you've studied Scripture, that doesn't mean we want to find out their names. That's a, that's a carnal knowledge. That's a physical knowledge. These are men that come, and men young and old come and surround Lot's home, and they said, give us the fresh meat. There are some men in your home. Let them out that we can have our way with them. Verse number seven, I'm sorry, six, and Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. He thought maybe he could have some influence. He was a man that sat in the gate. Maybe he could settle the crowd down. He comes and he shuts the door behind him, and verse number seven, he said, I pray you, what a, what a, what a sad word here, I pray you, brethren. The man that had followed God is now calling those whose hearts are against God, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have, and this is, let's read verse number eight aloud together, one of the most tragic verses in this book. Verse number eight, let's read it aloud together. Ready? Begin. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. You have to understand in Eastern culture, if you had welcomed someone into your home, the societal pressures and the societal expectations were that you would make, take care of their, their lodging, you would take care of their sustenance, their provision, their food, and their safety. And so this would have been really bad on Lot if these men had been harmed in some way, but just because of that, the ends don't justify the means. Look at the response. What a sad, tragic response. These men, young and old, come around Lot's home, and they begin to bang on the door and to beat on the house, and they begin to call out, hey, where are those guys? We saw some guys come in we hadn't seen before. Hey, let them out. Let us do what we want to do with them. And Lot comes out, and he closes the door behind him. What a tragic verse. He says, I have two daughters who are physically pure. They're virgins. Let me give, you, let me give them to you. Do whatever you want with them, but don't don't harm these. And I want us to stop, and this is not my message this morning, but I want to stop and say here, it's a, it's a reminder that, that this, the day we're living in is not the first time that wicked men and women have sought to push their perversion and their agendas on society and on others. What you and I are seeing in society today with all kinds of perversion, whether it is the hookup culture, whether it is premarital sex, whether it is adultery, whether it is uh, homosexual, all of those things, all of those are sexual perversions, and we're seeing them on a daily basis being, uh, you can't turn on the television without a show or a commercial or something. There's an agenda. It's not the first time that those with an agenda along these lines have come to our home, knocking on the door saying, let us in. Let us have a part in your family. Let, let, give us your children, if you will. And by the way, here, the cry always begins with tolerance, but it never stops there. The cry then continues on to acceptance, affirmation, and eventually demands that we be involved in it and desires that our children be part of it. The peddlers of wickedness are still banging at the doors of our homes today, demanding that we let them in. The question is, will we? 
Or like Lot, will we offer our children to their agendas? Verse number eight. We already read it, verse number nine, and they said, stand back, that is the angels, the two men, said, stand back, Lot, and they said again, this one fellow came in, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, 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 uh, not the angels here, the men said, stand back, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will, sojourn, and he will needs be a judge, now will we deal worse with thee than with them, and they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door, the mob begins to come and press in on Lot, and, and getting ready to br- break down the door of the home, but the men put forth their hands. These are the two angels, verse 10, and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said unto Lot, hast thou here any besides? Do you have any other family in town? Son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. Here it is, verse 13, would you read it aloud? Ready? Begin. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. He says, do you have any other family members here? Daughters, sons-in-laws, children, whatever it is, anybody else in the city, go find them, go get them. This city is about to be destroyed. Again, how many righteous were needed in Sodom for it not to be destroyed? How many? Ten, ten. Let's continue on. Verse number 14, and Lot went out, so he leaves his home. Again, get the picture. He he just about got crushed by a mob. They almost broke down the door. He offered his daughters. The angels didn't allow that to happen. They pulled him in. They struck the the men with blindness. They couldn't figure out where they were. They began to wander. And Lot is sneaking. He goes out of his home. He's sneaking through the darkness, through the alleyways, undoubtedly by some of these men and trying to get, and he goes over to his home. And we see here in verse number 14, the Bible says that Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters. In the Hebrew here, this plural is three or more. This is not... Uh, what we would call plural, we say two or more. You study the, the plural of this in Hebrew, it's three or more. So we have at least, we don't know, it could be many more than this, we have at least three married daughters and their, and their husbands. We don't know if there are any grandchildren. There may have been very likely grandchildren, uh, daughters, and said, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. So we know for sure, and the angels mentioned sons. Uh, there, we know that he's going to leave with two unmarried daughters. He had offered those two unmarried daughters to the men. So we have Lot. We have his wife. We have his two unmarried daughters that he offered unto the men. We have at least three married daughters and their husbands. That's another six. We have ten right there. And we don't know. There may have been grandchildren. There may have been other. It may have been more than three. There may have been sons um, that he had. The, the angel mentions that if you have sons. We don't know, but we know for sure there were at least ten in Lot's family. And he goes and he tells them, we've got to go. It's not looking good for Sodom. Look at verse number 14, the, the last phrase. But he seemed as one that mocked unto them. Lot lost his family in Sodom, didn't he? What a sad verse. He had lost spiritual influence in their lives. The culture around them had become a greater influence than the example and teachings of their father Lot. The culture around them had, had, had got, uh, uh, grasped their hearts more than the example and teaching of their father Lot, the man that did love God. We're going to see it in a little bit. He had lost his family in Sodom. And we see here, verse number 15. 
Verse number 15, and when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here. They're the only ones that lived in his home. The rest had already married and they were out. Lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, isn't that interesting? We don't want to leave. We don't want to leave that, even though we know it's wrong and it's not what God wants, that we've kind of invested our lives into, it's hard to leave it. It says he lingered. While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, they grabbed his arm, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. This was God's mercy. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. They basically said, it's time, we've got to go, it's over. You can't get anything else out of your house. Don't sit, your your kids, you had the chance last night to talk to your kids, they didn't listen to you. It's time to go. Verse number 17, and it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he has said, escape for thy life, look not behind thee. Don't look back at what you're missing by by going the way that God wants you to go and leaving that which you shouldn't be involved in. Neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Let me escape thither, and my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. Verse 26, another tragic verse. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. This is one of those stories that sometimes those that maybe want to cast doubt on Scripture, or those that want to make a caricature of Scripture, they'll sometimes, oh, that fire and brimstone, breathing God, oh, those stories where he poured out fire, oh, and she turned into a pillar of salt, and we don't know exactly what all of that means. It's likely, as you actually study that region, um, that there, there could have been some sort of seismic activity where gases came up, where she, as she lingered, looking back longingly at, at Sodom and Gomorrah, the life she was leaving that she should not have, uh, have wanted, that she was overcome by that. And then we do know that in that area, I'll I'll explain to you in a minute, that there was great salt content that then her body was overtaken by that. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's interesting. In just recent years in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea, archaeologists have discovered there is a one and a half meter layer of strata in the Middle Bronze Age uh, 2 section of the earth dated back about 3,650 years. Isn't that interesting? It caught the interest of some researchers for its highly unusual material. In addition to the debris that one would expect from destruction via warfare and earthquakes, they found pottery shards with outer surfaces melted into glass. Bubbled mud brick and partially melted building material, all indications of an anomalously high temperature event, much hotter than anything the technology of the time could produce. Here's what James Kennett, Emeritus Professor of Earth Science at UC Santa Barbara said. We saw evidence for temperatures greater than 2,000 degrees Celsius. The results are published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. He said there's evidence of a large cosmic airburst close to this city, similar to uh, when a meteor went, came, into, into, uh, uh, came into the earth in 1908, a similar event in this city called Tal El Hammam. 
Archaeologists found that the shock of the explosion over Tal el-Hammam nearly 4,000 years ago was enough to level the city, flattening the palace and surrounding walls and mud brick structures, according to the paper. The distribution of bones indicated extreme disarticulation and skeletal fragmentation in nearby humans. For Kinet, further proof of the airburst was found by conducting many different kinds of analysis on soil and sediments from that layer of strata. The airburst, according to the paper, may also explain the anomalously high concentrations of salt found in the destruction layer, an average of 4% in the sediment and as high as 25% in some samples. Pillar of salt, anyone? This event could have been responsible for the so-called Late Bronze Age Gap, the researchers say, in which cities along the lower Jordan Valley were abandoned, dropping the population from tens of thousands to maybe a few hundred nomads. Here's what they say. Nothing could grow in these formerly fertile grounds, forcing people to leave the area for centuries. All the observations stated in Genesis, the emeritus professor at UC Santa Barbara said, are consistent with a cosmic airburst. I'm not a scientist. We don't know all of that, but what I'm telling you is the Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks of science, it's always right. And it's not a history book, but when it speaks of history, it has always been proven right. And what we find out is archaeologists do these things, and they find there's a one and a half meter section of earth where there's these really weird things that they say there must have been heat ranging over 2,000 degrees Celsius that, that destroyed this, this place, and people didn't go because nothing could grow there. Isn't it interesting? God's Word told us all about that story. Now look at verse number 27, and our introduction is about done. And Abraham got up early in the morning. I want you to see the contrast here of Abraham, verse 27. Abraham got up early in the morning to, to the place where he stood before the Lord. Abraham and Lot a few chapters ago had been together. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and behold, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him for he feared to dwell in Zoar and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. It's interesting here, Abraham wakes up on the same morning and his life is completely different than Lot when he woke up on that morning. These men had been living together, following God together a few chapters ago, but Lot had made some decisions and Abraham had made some decisions that set their family's courses on completely different trajectories. You followed along well, we're almost done through our text here, and then I'll pull out a few thoughts. Look at verse number 31, another tragic verse. These, these two daughters who had been kept physically pure, who had never known a man, verse 31, and the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. Interesting little tidbit here that every time so far in Scripture as we've been studying through it, every time that alcohol is mentioned up to this point, it's accompanied by shame, by regret, by wickedness, and a curse upon the family where it is found. 
Verse 33, and they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my, my father, let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in, and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father, wickedness. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Benami, and the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Moabites and Ammonites. People groups that will be responsible for great wickedness and enemies of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, God's chosen people in the coming generations. And I want you to stop, and I know we read a lot there, 38 verses this morning. All that one story, and thank you for following along, but I want you to stop and think about how, where Lot found himself at the end of this. Lot finds himself in a cave. His wife is dead. His married children are dead. If there are any grandchildren, they're dead. All he has left are his two unmarried children. What a heartbreaking chapter. A godly man who had lost his family to a godless culture, lost his wife and his married children, compromised his morals in offering his daughters to perverts, daughters, his daughters compromising their morals and perversion with their father, illegitimate, Ill, illegitimate children born who would grow into pagan nations. And I believe that this, this chapter is a Reminder of what can happen when we move away from God and godly influences and get comfortable with the wickedness in the culture all around us. Just a reminder that a few chapters ago, Lot's life was so blessed and his career was so successful that he and Abraham's flocks couldn't coexist. They didn't have enough room for all of their flocks. His life, his, his, his portfolio was booming. His life was so good a few chapters ago. He ended up a widower in a cave with nothing but the clothes on his back who had lost all respect, power, position, friends, and influences. You want to hear something tragic? This, what the Bible tells us, this righteous man that God spared from the destruction of Sodom, what we just read is the last detail we will ever know about his life. The rest of the Old Testament, the only time you'll see the word Lot mentioned is when it talks about the children of Lot, meaning the Moabites and the Ammonites. And then in the New Testament, there will be a couple of places where his name is mentioned as a caution and a warning to you and to me, to, to New Testament believers. One of them is, remember Lot's wife. And another one it talks about, we'll see the verse here in a minute, in, in, in Peter, Second Peter. You don't, we don't find out anything else. This is the legacy of Lot. This is the last thing that we know. The last time we hear anything of his name or his life is there in verse 36, where as he lies unconsciously drunk, having unknowingly impregnated his two unmarried daughters. This morning, and I know it's a little heavy, this is not a real fun, fun, happy uh, passage today, but this is what happens when you walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. You come to some hard passages and some crazy stories. But here's the challenge for us this morning. The challenge is this, don't lose your family in Sodom. Don't lose your family in Sodom. 
And I'm not just talking about those of us that have children in our homes still. Whatever your family unit is, whatever your life is, don't lose your family in Sodom. Think of all that Lot lost. He lost his marriage and his purity and his children and his relationships and his purpose and his potential. His only legacy was two pagan nations that came from his incestuous involvement with his own virgin daughters. How does this happen? And what can we learn from Lot's cautionary tale in our own lives? How did he lose his family? How did he get from a thriving life with his godly uncle Abraham to a drunken stupor in a cave outside of Zoar? How did he get there? I'm going to give us three thoughts and three warnings, and at the end I'm going to ask all of us to make one of three decisions this morning. Number one, how did he get there? I would suggest to you, and there may be more than these three, but I would suggest to you, how did Lot get to this tragic, heartbreaking chapter in Genesis 19? Number one, a wrong view of what really matters. A wrong view of what really matters. Hold your hand here, if you will. Would you turn back a few chapters with me? Look at two verses in Genesis 13. Genesis chapter number 13. Do you remember when we were there a couple of months ago, Genesis 13? They, they, their business is going so well that Lot's herdmen and Abraham's herdmen begin to fight. And Abraham comes and says, family is more important than money. Blood is thicker than water. Our relationship's more important than my portfolio. I want to fix this. And he came and he said, Lot, let's, let there be no strife between me and thee, for we be brethren. I want us to be family. And I preached uh, a while ago last year on, on diffusing the conflicts of life from this passage. And do you remember what happened? Abraham said, I'm not willing to fight. You pick where you want to go, and then I'll take what's left over. And I want you to look at how Lot made that decision. He didn't make that decision based on what is best for me or my family's spiritual lives, what is most respectful to my my uncle Abraham. Look at what he did, verse number 9, chapter 13, verse number 9, Abraham says, is not the whole land before thee? Verse number 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered every everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. It was like the garden of Eden. It was was this thriving, beautiful place, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other. And then we see in verse number 12, at the end of it, and Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. How did Lot make his decision, his big decisions in life? What looked good? What felt good? What really mattered to Lot, it was materialism. It was comfort. It was ease. He pitched his tent. And now he wasn't living in Sodom, but this, was, this move was the best thing for his business. It had the best places for his animals to feed. This was going to make him more money. This, this, I'm going to make this decision, and, and then, not only that, every day he and his family woke up and they looked and they began to see all of the fun and the pleasure that was happening in Sin City there in Sodom. They began to look and see what was going on there, and, and he, he had a wrong view of what really matters. He and Abraham made very different decisions at this juncture, and we see where their decisions led them. So many things that we think matter in this life and for our families that that in the long run end up being detrimental. What are some of the things that we as Americans often put above God in the priority list for ourselves and for our children? Would you agree with me that often as humans, and this is throughout history, but then as Americans, that often one of the most important things, the highest priorities we put in big decisions for our families is finances? 
I'm going to choose my career based on where I can make the most money. I'm going to choose where I can live based on finances. And by the way, nothing wrong with finances. Nothing wrong if God blesses your career and God God allows you to be very—Abraham was a very wealthy, rich man, and he still lived for God and honored God and pleased God. But what is wrong is when that takes the priority. I'm going to move my family, not, not even thinking about what it's going to do to our spiritual lives, just what is it going to do to our bottom line. Career success. Educational achievements. Again, nothing wrong with any of these things. But when we make decisions about that, not thinking about the other. Athletics, pleasure, fun, materialism. Lot was attracted to all of these things. He ended up, he pitched his tent towards Sodom, then he ended up moving into Sodom. Chapter 13, he began looking at Sodom. Then 14, he moved into Sodom. By 19, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. Little decisions, he had no idea where it would lead his family to come to a place that he couldn't even speak spiritually to his grown children without them making fun of him. What really matters in this life, our relationship with God, our relationships with godly people. And here's my challenge to us this morning, not to lose our family in Sodom. By the way, you say, that's why I got to get out of California. You can't raise a good family in California. It's, It's not, God has always raised up godly people in wicked places, and by the way, Everything that you're struggling with in California is, is all over the country as well. You're not getting away from whatever sin it is. I get it. They might have a different governor, and they might have this or that, and it might be, might be easy for you for a, a whatever. That, you can figure that out between you and God. But Daniel lived for God in Babylon. Noah lived for God when times were much worse than they are today. It's not about I've got to get my family to a place. It's about I've got to get my heart to a place that is making decisions for the right reason, reason, seeing things in the right ways. And I want to challenge you, when you're making decisions for yourself and for your family, for where you'll live, for the job that you're going to take, for where your kids are going to go to school, in elementary school and in high school, what college they're going to attend, what activities they're going to be involved in extracurricular, ask yourself, I want to challenge you to ask yourself first and foremost, what spiritual impact will this have on their lives? I've worked with thousands of families in 23 years of vocational ministry, and I've watched many make godly, wonderful, prioritized decisions for their families and never regret it. And I've watched, unfortunately, many make, like Lot, this looks good. This feels good. This is going to give my kid the upper hand to get that scholarship. This is going to, and by the way, I'm not against kid getting a scholarship. What I'm saying is, what's our number one priority with making those decisions? Is it our children's spiritual growth? Is it our families? I'm going to take this job, and yes, it means I can't really go to church faithfully, and I won't be able to serve, and I'm not really going to be a part of the church, and I'm going to really, but I'll, I'll read my Bible more on the other time, and I, but, but I, I can't give up the money. I can't pass it up. Be careful. Be careful about a wrong view of what really matters. How will this affect our commitment to God, our relationship with God, our focus on spiritual things? What do we ask ourselves when making these decisions in life sometimes? What is fun? What will make us the most money? What do my kids want? What is everyone else around me doing? And we don't realize there are some of these decisions that can lead to some long-term influences in their lives that will look back as Lot's wife did undoubtedly. I think one of the reasons she looked back was she didn't want to leave Sodom. She liked the lifestyle there. I have to imagine another reason that she looked back was she knew her adult children were dying in that fire and brimstone. And we look back and say, why did we ever let our family get to that place? 
We don't realize where some of those decisions can lead in the long term for our children. His wrong view of what mattered most with him looking towards Sodom in chapter 13. Wearsby said it this way, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body arrived there. Reminds me of Psalm 1, verse number 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. There's a progression there, isn't it? You walk with those, you just begin to allow influences in your life, you walk with those that are ungodly, then you stand, you stop and get a little closer in the seat, stand, uh, blessed are those uh, walk in the, in the ways of the ungodly, um, standeth in the seat of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Then you sit down and it becomes who you are. Don't you see that progression with Lot? 13, 14, 19, these chapters. Number one, how did he lose his family in Sodom? I believe it started with a wrong view of what really mattered. He thought materialism, comfort, ease, fun was more important than godly influences and godly relationships, a godly commitment. Number two, I believe Lot underestimated the power of daily influences. How are we going to lose our family in Sodom by underestimating the power of daily influences? Here's the thing about Lot. I can't point anywhere in any scripture about him where there was some egregious, gross sin committed by him. In fact, we're going to see a verse here in a minute. God called him a righteous soul. I believe, we use New Testament terminology, he was saved. He was a believer. He was saved by faith in God. I don't see anywhere that Lot partook in the sins of Sodom. The worst thing that I see is when in a moment of weakness, in a moment of pressure, in a moment of what's going to happen, he offered his daughters to those wicked men. And by the way, that's, that's a bad thing. But I don't see anywhere that Lot was, was involved in those things. I don't see any egregious godless action that led to the spiritual destruction and heartache of his life and family. And in fact, in, in the midst of all the wickedness, he never personally got involved in that perversion. He just didn't realize all the ways his daily influences were affecting him and his family. What did Peter say in 2 Peter chapter number 2, verses 7 and 8 about Lot? And God delivered just, that word just means a good, godly man, just, that doesn't mean only Lot. God delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Conversation is lifestyle. He allowed it to, to, to come in and, and affect his life daily. Look what it says. For that, what is that? How does it describe him? That what kind of man? That what kind of man? Righteous man dwelling among them. What does it say? In seeing and hearing, not in doing. In seeing and in hearing vexed his righteous soul, one time, from day to day with their unlawful deeds. This was not one major mess up. This was not Lot got tempted one time by somebody he shouldn't have been around, and he threw his life away. That's not what it was. This was not, I heard one preacher say regarding pastors that sometimes fall, who's teaching us, some men that were training for ministry, and he said in the Christian life, there is, there's never a blowout, it's always a slow leak. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day. 
Didn't realize the power, I can handle that. Didn't realize the power of the daily influences coming into his home, coming into his life, what his children were seeing, if we were to talk about it today, what they were watching on television and what they were, what they were following on their social media accounts and who they were talking to at school and what school he had enrolled them in. He didn't realize the daily influences that he had allowed into his life that in turn ended up impacting his entire family. He leads him to a, a drunken stupor in a cave, having committed unthinkable wickedness. Why? Because he underestimated the power of daily influences. Don't we do the same? Don't we have a wrong view of what really matters in this life? We think this is what's, and we, we put the spiritual things to the side while we chase everything this world has to offer. And then don't we underestimate the power of daily influences? And then we just start getting used to stuff. It, this verse that we just had up there from Second Peter gives us a window into who Lot was. He was a good man. He was a just man, a righteous man. But he underestimated the power of daily influences in his life. Well, I can handle that temptation, Pastor Ryan. Be careful. Be careful about that, get, whatever that, that account that you're following, that person at work that you're talking to, well, that, that, that friend that you're allowing in, that, that device that your child has got, whether it's your life, your marriage, your children, be careful. There's great power in vexing our righteous souls from day to day with their unlawful deeds. When thinking about this verse on Lot that we just read about vexing his righteous soul, I remember the story of a man one of my Bible college professors told me about. He was, he was, not, he was, was not around really um, after I had gotten saved, so I had never personally heard about him. But there might be some in this room that might remember him on TV. Or His name is Bob Harrington. I think we have a picture of him there. I'll leave that picture up for a minute. That's not the most interesting man in the world. That's a different guy. And uh, kind of looks like him, doesn't he, with that, with that suit on there? His name is Bob Harrington. Harrington became a Christian at the age of 30 in Sweetwater, Alabama. Soon after, he became a well-known evangelist during the 60s and 70s. He was a popular guest on national television shows, including Phil Donahue, Merv Griffin, and The Tonight Show, due to his one-liners and his unconventional religious wit. In the 70s, Bob met famed atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. The two could have not been more polar opposites, but this unlikely duo toured 38 cities debating the existence of God. Harrington's eight-day crusades, first held in tents and later high school stadiums and convention centers, produced thousands of converts. In 1960, after he had been, as I said, saved at 30, after preaching for a couple of years, he decided to move down to New Orleans, and he enrolled in the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and began to go to seminary to train more there, and it was, he moved there with his wife Joyce and their two daughters, Rhonda and Mitzi. It was in a chapel service there that the seminary president said, wherever there is a pocket of sin, there is a mission field, and the nearest Christian to it is a missionary. Wherever there is a pocket of sin, it's a mission field, and the nearest Christian to it is a missionary. Harrington, because he was there in New Orleans, he said, according to him, he said the nearest pocket of sin was Bourbon Street. Bourbon Street, anybody been to Bourbon Street or there in New Orleans? I've been there myself. Bourbon Street is probably one of the most wicked streets, single streets in our country. Billy Graham called it the middle of hell. 
As a Bible college student, I remember going to a youth rally in New Orleans. We were staying at a French Quarter. There was youth groups. We weren't staying on Bourbon Street. We were staying in the French Quarter, which is a beautiful area. I remember getting some beignets at Café Du Monde. It's kind of a cool city, and we did some of those things. And there was one night that the, uh, the pastor, we walked down. I was a Bible college student, and, and uh, we walked down with the youth group to go to a restaurant that was right on the corner near Bourbon Street. And we went to take the kids to a restaurant. I remember walking by just for, for maybe a block or two Bourbon Street, and as a 19 or 20-year-old, the, the debauchery that was just open there, and there were people standing there talking to minor children, saying, come on in here, come see what, what we've got in here, oh, you're going to like this. And obviously you could tell I was a young single man, oh, come on in, this is exactly what you want, you need this. And I remember getting back to my hotel room that night and feeling almost a dark, I don't know how to describe it, I haven't felt it too many times in my life, but almost a darkness in my soul. Almost an oppression of being, being around there. And, 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 I, and I remember this thought. I think, Tiffany, we were dating. I think, I don't know if you'll remember this. I, I remember telling you, it, to, and I said these words. I said, it reminded me as I was walking, this must have been what Sodom and Gomorrah was like where sin was just prevalent on the street and people were openly flaunting it and inviting others in. Well, Bob Harrington had a passion for this wicked street, this wicked area, and Bob Harrington as a Bible college student, he said, he, 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 as there at that, he, he began a street ministry armed with a microphone and a Bible. Several months later, deacons at First Baptist of New Orleans loaned him enough money for a few months' rent to open a chapel on Bourbon Street in the heart of the French Quarter. Harrington began witnessing and preaching in the bars and the strip clubs of Bourbon Street. In 1962, the mayor of New Orleans, Victor Shiro, proclaimed him the chaplain of Bourbon Street. We have another picture that shows him there. He was known, and uh, there might be some, anybody remember this, the chaplain of Bourbon Street? Is there anybody that's old enough to remember that or remembers around? Um, from what I understand from reading, obviously, on television shows, and the chaplain of Bourbon Street. Sadly, his ministry on Bourbon Street ended in 1977, as well as his marriage as he got caught up in pride, fame, finances, and womanizing. He would remarry shortly thereafter, and that marriage too would end, and he spent two decades away from the Lord. Two decades. His children, his daughters, one daughter married an evangelist. Children were living for the Lord, but he hadn't lost his children on Bourbon Street, but he had lost his, himself. He had lost his marriage. For two, two decades, he was away from the Lord and breaking his family's heart, bringing disgrace to the name of Christ, a man that had traveled preaching to tens and tens of thousands. Thankfully, and you can read about it, there's a book out on his life. In his final years, he humbled himself, he repented, and he came back to the Lord. And this man that thought, I can be, in, in seeing and in hearing, I won't be impacted. In seeing and in hearing, and my, my right, and he, and he said it wasn't all the Bourbon Street temptations, it was also his own flesh, and it was the pride and the fame. He, was, he, was, he said, as I got going as a preacher, people started just kind of worshiping me, and, and I, I was living the dream, and I had millions of dollars coming into our ministry, and all of this, but that debauchery he had, he had surrounded himself with, it had a daily impact. And some lessons he said he learned at the end of his life, he said this, he said, don't sin. Now that's kind of impossible, but he said, cut out your sinning. Here's what he said, walk with the Lord daily. Keep that armor on even when you're asleep. Be sure your sword is always sharp with your Bible study and prayer. What is he saying? I allowed myself to let daily influences come and weaken my resistance. 
When it comes to pastors and other Christian leaders, he warned them to surround themselves with righteous people. Here's what he said, never be anywhere without righteous people knowing who you are, where you're going, who you're with, where you're going, and what you're doing. Fellowship with those kinds of people. Keep yourself surrounded with people who can lift up your arms when you're weak and keep you closer to God. Be around people you can encourage and who can encourage you. Avoid anything that might lead to something wrong. A man that had lost his ministry, his marriage, 20 years of his life living away from God. What is he saying? Watch out for your daily influences. Put some walls of protection up in your life. He also warned people not to laugh at backsliders, it might be them, and to try witnessing to someone every day. Here's what he said, a witness a day will keep backsliding away. When you witness for Jesus every day, it will help you keep your heart clean. What was Bob Harrington, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, saying? He was saying, be careful of your influences and don't underestimate the power that daily influences and small daily decisions can have on your life. So here's the question for us today. What are you allowing to vex your righteous soul from day to day, in seeing and in hearing? What influences are you allowing in that are not drawing you closer to Christ, but they're drawing you away? Is it friends? Is it social media? Is it entertainment? Is it music? What you're reading, what you're watching, what you're listening to and emulating, in seeing and in hearing? And third, and I've got to wrap it up, we see the third way here, compromised values. How do you lose your family in Sodom? compromised values. What a shocking verse, verse 8 is. Hey guys, don't take these strangers that I just met, take my daughters. By the way, they didn't do anything to their daughters, but I have to wonder if the end of chapter 19 might have been a little different had their daughters not seen their dad's complete lack of regard for their personal purity and their personal uh, protection. I have to wonder if maybe his compromised values isn't what led his daughters to compromise their values in those same areas. Lot moved into Sodom, and somewhere along the way, Sodom moved into Lot, and a a righteous man that vexed his righteous soul compromised his values. I don't believe he planned on doing that. I don't believe he ever expected it to happen, but it happened. By the way, he had done something right. He had kept two unmarried daughters clean before the Lord, and they had done something right. He had trained them, living in the midst of what we would call sin city. He had kept them right and pure physically. He had done something right as a dad. But then, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of pressure, he compromised his morals and his values. He allowed himself to get to a place that he was willing to sacrifice their purity and his morals. His children saw that, and not long after, they are defiling themselves and their father. He had lost influence in his own family. John MacArthur said this, Lot had apparently not indulged in the sins of Sodom, yet he had still lost his credibility among his neighbors and even his own family. This is an important principle to understand, he says, when we live at peace with the world around us, meaning we accept the debauchery, we risk losing our testimony even if we do not indulge in worldly practices. Our compromised values always affect our children, always. We're going to see it next week with Abraham. 
Our compromised values always affect our children. We must, parents, we must stand strong in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. No matter what the culture around us is doing or pushing or encouraging, we must stay true to the principles of God. Thursday night we had a guest speaker here that preached on six reasons. We must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. We must, parents, be careful not to allow the daily influences to lead us to compromise God's Word, to compromise our values and our morals. Take inventory of how you're doing spiritually. Guard your heart daily. The proverb Solomon said, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. How's your marriage? How's your family? The Bible tells us that Job prayed every day for his adult children. A man who had raised his children and were living for God, he was still on a daily basis praying for them. He had not compromised his values. He was still living an upright and perfect man, the Bible says. Don't compromise your values in a, because of the wickedness around us. Proverbs 20, verse 7, Solomon said this, the just man walketh in his integrity, and what? His children are blessed after him. Our values, or lack thereof, always impact the next generation, always impact those coming behind us. How we live matters. Another generation is watching us. Don't lose your family in Sodom. In this chapter, we see two very different characters, don't we? Lot, running for his life and losing his family and everything valuable to him in God's judgment. And we see Abraham waking up, seeing the smoke rising, and losing nothing. He lost family members, but you understand what I'm saying as it relates to his life and his ministry and God's plan and purpose for his life and his marriage, lost nothing. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah had no idea when they were awakening that morning that they were awakening to the last day of their lives. They thought it would be another wonderful day of pleasure and debauchery in Sin City. And by the way, may I say this? There is coming a day where every one of us will awaken to the last day of our lives. Tracy told me Sandra's been about six months out caring for her mother, and her mother passed over to glory on Friday. She woke up on that day to the last day of her earthly life. Sometimes we can see it coming, in, like in that instance where her health had been deteriorated for quite some time, and other times we have no idea. But there is coming a day as the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, we will wake up for the last time. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says there is coming a day when all of us awaken to that last day, and the Bible tells us it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Exactly what the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah went through, that day is coming for all of us, a day where, of judgment, where the, 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 the judge will stand and we will see, is our book written down in the Lamb's book of life? When the judgment comes, here's my question for you, and we're almost done. Will you be like Abraham and not have to worry about the wrath of God? Or like the people of Sodom, will you be lost forever in eternal fire and eternal brimstone? The prophet Isaiah said these words in Isaiah 55, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. If you're here under the sound of my voice, you're watching online, he, you, you have the opportunity, if you've never found him, to find him today. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way. 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is not a story trying to scare us that God is an angry God up there looking to pour out fire and brimstone upon you. This is a reminder to us that he is a holy God, that the Bible says there is a judgment day coming, and if there's never been a moment in your life where you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, seek you the Lord while he may be found. Seek him while you can. You have this opportunity. As Paul said to the Corinthians, behold, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Christ died for the wicked people like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't hate them, and we ought not hate them. He died for them. He did not die for good people because there are none. He died for the ungodly. And without faith in Christ, none of us will be saved from the eternal wrath and judgment to come. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and it says this in John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So here's the question, and here's the decision. I told you I wanted to ask each person here, based on what we've seen in Scripture today, to make one of three decisions this morning. Seek you the Lord while he may be found. You have this opportunity today. You're still alive, and I'm still alive. God has given us this day to do one of three things. Number one, to repent. A change of mind to turn to God. To repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. To do what every inhabitant of Sodom wished they had done before they woke up on that morning. To do what every person that was left outside of the ark wished they had done when the rain started falling. When God's judgment came, the Bible says that there's coming a day that every knee shall bow. You will, you will acknowledge that, that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of, of the Father. You will do it. The question is, will you do it voluntarily here, or will you do it at judgment day according to Scripture? If, you've, if you're here, you've never been saved. You've never turned to Christ to, to accept forgiveness of sins. You've never placed your faith and trust in Christ alone. That word repent, it just means to do an about face. It's the idea of to change your mind. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you have to clean up your whole act. It doesn't mean you have to get everything. You have to become perfect. No, you come to Christ who is perfect to let him forgive you of your sins. You're, you're going one direction away from God, and you do a change and about face. You go 180 degrees toward God. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The wages of sin is death, judgment, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure that if today were the day that you would die, or today were the day that I would die, you don't know for sure that heaven would be your home, that your sins have been forgiven. Make today the day that you turn to Christ as your personal Savior. Is that you this morning? You need to repent? Number two, maybe what you need to do is return. Return to the Lord from a life lived for selfish and sinful pleasure. By the way, Lot had a chance to do this. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Abraham went on that rescue mission? Lot had been taken captive, and he, and he brought him back. And Lot didn't have to go move back into, Lot, into Sodom, but he chose to. He had a chance to get back in a healthy place for him and his family, but he chose not to. Are you like the chaplain of Bourbon Street, maybe? You're here this morning, but the truth of the matter is, you're really struggling with your faith. You've kind of, you've kind of pushed God away. 
you've kind of, and for some reason, maybe it was for a friend or maybe a family member, maybe you just decided to kind of wander in or you're watching or listening to this later on. And if you're being honest, you're not living the way that you should be. You've allowed your righteous soul to be vexed from day to day in seeing and in hearing. And maybe you need to get some things right with God today. Last week, our newest member joined, and her testimony was that. As a teenager, she had given her life to God. She had lived for God, and then for decades as an adult, really no spiritual priorities at all. And what happened during COVID, God really got all over her, and she returned. Now, she didn't have to get resaved. Once saved, always saved. But she returned. She said, I, I've got to make God a priority in my life. I've got to get back like the chaplain of Bourbon Street did, thankfully, a couple decades later. I've got to get back. And then, lastly, maybe, maybe what you need to do, you're not away from the Lord, but today, this morning, I'm going to ask you, would you recommit yourself to living a life in obedience to God's Word and God's plan, not what looks good or feels good to you? Recommit yourself like Abraham did. Abraham, in this story, he, he made a decision, I'm going to try to live in ways that are pleasing to God, try to value what matters most. Which one of these is what you need to do today? Is there some here that say, I need to turn to Christ as my personal Savior? Are there some here that say, I, I really, I, I need to, I need to uh, return? I've been saved, but I've gotten away from the Lord. Or others that say, I've been trying to, but to be honest, I've allowed some influences to come in that have kind of changed my priorities a little bit. And I need to recommit to living where God wants me to live in ways that God wants me to live like Abraham. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.